Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Uh, Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Ike Lassiter, a writer, author, thinker, and entrepreneur in the space of uh, nonviolent communication as well as 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 others. Uh, Ike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Ike, why don't you give a a brief background? Uh, You you, uh, started out as a a lawyer, but how did you come to to discover uh, nonviolent communication and then uh, come to found Mediate Your Life? Uh, Well, I was practicing law in San Francisco where I founded a law firm and um, we had about 20 people at that point. And I was frustrated with the kind of communication that was going on in the office. Uh, People would get into conflict and then they wouldn't uh, talk with each other, but they would, they would, uh, you know, enlist allies in the firm and it would roil the firm for sometimes weeks. And then when I tried to bring people into my office and, you know, talk, act sort of as a mediator for people to talk through it, I just ended up throwing gasoline on the fire. Um, and so I was looking uh, for a, you know, a consultant to help with this. And I, at the time, was doing a lot of silent meditation retreats. And I was at Green Gulch Zen Center taking a course from Ed Brown and uh, one Saturday, I used to regularly do his Saturday meditations. He joked about him. He said they weren't five to nine a day meditations. They were nine to five mediation (laughs) meditations. And uh, he mentioned uh, some kind of communication theory, observation, feelings, needs, and requests. And I perked up and um, I got on uh, a mailing list, and months later, I got a a flyer, you know, a really not very well put together kind of photocopied flyer. I'm used. I was used to being solicited for all of these lawyer continuing ed, glossy, fancy, highly targeted kinds of things, and this little flyer came in, and I signed up for it and spent three days. Um, with Marshall Rosenberg in an adult uh, mental health daycare in San Francisco behind the San Francisco Zoo. And and you ended up working with him for some time, right? I did. I went to everything that he did in the Bay Area. He was coming to the Bay Area every six months. Um, I I then he asked me to be on the board of the Center for Nonviolent Communication. I did that for six years which entails, you know, three times a year going someplace in the world for a five-day board meeting. And I just, I went to everything that I could go to. I went to about, a later calculated about 100 days of training with Marshall. And uh, then, I, then I teamed up with a guy in the Bay Area uh, who's still there and still going strong, John Kenyon. We founded Mediate Your Life, and we spent about 15 years kind of, uh, as I look back upon it, much of what I realize I've done, I look back upon and figure out I've done. And we kind of figure out a series of ways that nonviolent communication can be used, and we call them maps. And we learn, and we, you know, 
how to actually support people to integrate nonviolent communication into their lives. That's not an easy task. It's a challenge as a trainer, but also as a person doing it. And we, we figured out all sorts of things. Uh, it, we didn't figure them out intellectually. We stumbled around in the space and people in our workshops all over the world taught us uh, they sort of they would point to the next step or we'd figure out oh we're backing into it again and we we, we found out, we figured out a lot of stuff and, and uh, when you say you, you did that for 15 years it implies sort of a are you doing something different or additional now or, or are you not? Uh, well about three or four years ago now I don't know exactly uh, John and I figured out it just wasn't economic for the two of us to be going to all of these workshops and being co-facilitating, being paid, our travel, and so on. So then we, we went our separate ways very amicably, and uh, he's continuing on more with the name of nonviolent communication, and I have focused my attention on how to adapt this grammar that I call nonviolent communication at the core, how to adapt that to the business world um, as a way of crossing the chasm, the name of a book from the 1990s about marketing and how to cross the chasm into the mainstream. And I, I concluded you do that by going to businesses. Um, and that's what I've been doing for the last few years. And, and we'll get into all that. For, for, the, for the non uh, initiated, the uninitiated, how, how do you most succinctly describe what nonviolent communication is? Well, nonviolent communication, in my experience, is like a hologram. It depends on where you start as to how you begin to describe it. Uh, in the context of what I've just been saying, um, NVC is a strategy to, for a certain purpose, to, to get things, to, to have experiences, that, more of the kind of experiences you want to have in the world. In NBC jargon, that's how to better meet your needs, how to meet, better meet needs of others. And this is needs being used in the, in the um, Abraham Maslow approach of hierarchy of needs. But a lot of other theorists have been using this terminology around the world for a number of decades now. Um, it also, as I just said, it's a grammar. Uh, and Marshall Rosenberg was a synthesizer. It's not so much that he discovered or came up with revelations, but he put together things. And he was a great reader of the wisdom literature and um, the very experienced, knowledgeable uh, student of Carl Rogers, who had huge impact in the psychological uh, world in the mid, um, the mid uh, 20th century. Um, and he took this idea of needs, which was floating around, and he put it into a grammar. And what do I mean by a grammar? A grammar of observation, feeling, needs, requests. So Marshall's insight was, if I want to communicate with another person, now, if I'm doing some other kind of communication, I may use other strategies. But if, I, if I'm trying to communicate with another person, I want to know what's going on inside the other person and what needs they're seeking to meet. And I want them to know what's going on inside of me. We can shorthand it by saying feelings, but it's not just feelings, it's also my thoughts, it's my uh, 
imagery. It's, it's what has been my life experience that's playing out in this moment. I want to know what's going, I want people to know what's going on inside of me and what needs I'm seeking to meet. So that's the observation helps us do that, telling people what, our, what we're feeling at the moment or finding out that about the other person. Actually naming the need or using some kind of surrogate for the need. It doesn't have to be a one word uh, term that's developed off of a list. You can go on the internet and find lists of needs. Um, and a request. I mean, I spent a long time in my early curve of NVC learning focusing on requests, so much so that my friends made fun of me as the request guy. Uh, just the clarity of having a request that is doable, present tense and action language, and actually asking for what you want. Now that sounds really simple and obvious, and that of course everybody tries to do that. But in fact, people don't try to do that. Lots of people try to hide their requests because there's some kind of early childhood experience that if you reveal exactly what you want, that you're more at risk, you're more vulnerable to people. And so you, you desperately want whatever your request might be, but yet afraid to actually say it. And, uh, this I've experienced this in many cultures around the world. Lots of people have this kind of experience. So to have this kind of format and discipline to go, oh, I haven't told this person what I want. And also the power of personally saying what my request is frees up that person. They're not making up a story of what you might want, something that they would resist against. They're going, oh, this is why this people, person is communicating with me. Oh, I'm willing to do that, or I'm willing to change it in this way or that way. And now we've taken all of this cloud of uncertainty and, and weirdness that often goes on in communication and brought it down to, oh, this is what this person wants. I'm willing to do part of this or in a certain way, or I need clarification. But, but now we're talking we're, we're much more closer to the target and we're talking about what really would satisfy this person. So that's the grammar. Observation, feeling, needs, request. You can make sentences, uh, what, I, what many people call a trailing, training wheel sentence. When I hear you say that or when I see you do that, I feel, and you put in a feeling word and I need, uh, put in a feeling word and, and then a request. And, I, I would echo what I heard Marshall Rosenberg say on more than one occasion, which is, please don't use that sentence with me <laughs> because I'm liable to throw up or some, I forget the last part, but it's just people get tired of hearing it. It's an awkward way of communicating, but it's supremely helpful to me to structure what is going on. Now I don't need this when things are going well, you know, when there's a flow of connection, I use with my friends and my friends with me and teasing, my kids tease me and that, that there's love in all of that, no matter how it's said. And I would give you examples. I'm from South Texas. I have rather crude inner dialogue, <laughs> but I'll spare you and your listeners to that. Uh, but you don't need it then. When you need it is when you're disconnected and there's some kind of challenge, some, uh, also, there's, you know, you're stimulated into fight, flight, freeze, adrenaline is flowing, that's an example. 
when you're hungry and you're cranky, those are just examples. But there are times when you're liable to have connection, it's more difficult to come back to connection. This is incredibly useful in those circumstances. And, and we'll get into some of that, but I, I want to focus on this point of, uh, you, you call it a grammar. Given that you're a trained lawyer, how does it compare to the grammar of, of law and, and the legal system? Well, law and the legal system, uh, it's sort of in two ways that immediately pop out in my mind. One is you're generally appealing to authority. So this is, there's lots of shoulds in there. This is what should happen. This is the result that should flow from this because the Supreme Court in blank, blank, blank says so. So that's not, tell, that's not communicating what's going on inside of me or trying to find out what's going on inside of somebody else. It's an appeal to authority. Much of religion is an appeal to authority. You know, you have to because of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments say, or the book of the Bible, this verse in the Bible says, so, or the Quran or the Talmud or whatever. Uh, it's appeal to authority. So that's one thing that's, that's very different. Um, much of the law is also, the criminal side of the law is based upon uh, the idea of, of punishment. Um, but even on the civil side, there's, there's lots about uh, establishing blame, who's at fault. And, and it's very backward, very not backward in any kind of, I'm not trying to connotate any negative, but it's, it's backward in time looking. It's looking backward in time to try to bring us to some sort of um, equilibrium in the moment. Um, whereas NVC is very forward-looking. You can deal with things in the past, but it's, it's, there, there are very few examples of when you typically use it looking backwards. You're looking forward, of, okay, this is what the state of affairs is now between you and me and maybe others that are present in the room or whatever. What can we do now? What is the request that we can agree upon what is the strategy, the proposal that we can agree upon at this moment that moves us forward so that we better get our needs met? Um, so those are two of the reasons, there are two of the ways that I see the law is different. I, I used NBC a lot. I used it in the courtroom in the last big trial that I, that I tried uh, in Fresno, California in federal court. Um, I used it with witnesses opposed. Oh, I used it in a cross examination, a very dramatic cross dramatic from my side. It wasn't dramatic from anybody else, but dramatic in the sense that it was so changing. Um, this was a big, a big, super fun environmental case, and I had a uh, a defense witness. I the defense witness had been put on for a couple of hours, and then I ended up cross examining her for three days. And uh, I had taken her deposition. I, I had, you know, a relatively few number of points to cover, but she wasn't experienced in testifying. And so she, I believe, had all sorts of thoughts about how I was going to trap her, or I was going to do whatever. And, and she developed a very antagonistic view of me. Um, I was doing all the things that I'd been trained to do as a lawyer. 
that I had not yet modified uh, through my application of NVC. And at one point, she walked past my colleague in the courtroom and said, "Your, you know, your boss is an asshole." And um, and I can certainly see why she was seeing that because I was trying to, I was under tremendous pressure from the judge to speed things up because we were already weeks behind the schedule when we when all the attorneys there were like eight attorneys in the room had said, oh yeah, we're gonna be done by this date and we're now two weeks past that date. And, um, and I was just terribly frustrated. I didn't know what to do. I'd done all the stuff, all, by the end of the first day, I thought I had done, you know, God, I was feeling hopeless. And I go back to my hotel room and, um, you know, about 10.30 at night, I go, well, I could try NBC. A little voice in my head said, you could try NBC. And I said, are you out of your mind in a courtroom? No, you no, you can't do that. Uh, but I worked out a script in my head, very basic script, very early days of my NVC. And I, uh, the way the way it was manifesting was that I would ask her a question. Of course, I had the deposition, so I knew the answer. But she would give me her opinion from the very beginning of the opinion all the way up to answer my questions. So part of it is I needed to educate her that she didn't need to do that, that it was already transcribed. And if there was anything that was left out, her attorneys were right there. They were going to have a chance to do redirect examination and, and they would have a chance to clean things up. So that she relaxed with that. And then I just said, you know, I've, I've got a time constraint here. And I, I just uh, am, am hoping that we can get this testimony done expeditiously for you and others. But you're, you're, you're going to get to confer with counsel at all the breaks. You're going to get to clean everything up. You're going to get to do whatever. And I said, I, I just wonder if you'd be willing to, to answer my question uh, without all of the preamble. And she looked at me kind of like I'd hit her, like, you know, with a, you know, the proverbial two by four between the forehead, like, oh, that's a novel idea. <laughs> and she said, yes. And then I asked the next question. She started from the beginning and started answering. And I leaned forward. We had to stand up even though I, I, I couldn't. I was in pain the entire time in this trial. I stood up and I leaned forward a little bit. I mean, I stood straighter and leaned forward a little bit. And she goes, oh, okay. And then she answered the question and she went to the second question. And I kind of just... I just slightly leaned forward. At this point, I was having fun in the courtroom. I just kind of leaned forward a little bit. Okay, 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 okay. And then she shortened, you know, just answered the question. And then I asked the third question, and she started from the beginning again. And I stood absolutely still. I wanted to see how long it would be before she, you know, snapped to that she could just answer the question uh, without all the preamble. And it was, you know, 10, 20 words. And she said, oh, okay. <laughs> So that was dramatic to me because I thought the courtroom, I thought, I don't know what I thought. I mean, this was one of the experiences that I had in early days of NBC. I thought that if I was going to try this new thing that I was learning, this strategy in my personal life or my, my law life, that somehow or another I was going to get outed and I was going to get embarrassed and get uh, emotionally hurt. Um, course, I never would have put it that way to myself in those days because I was steeped in this 
legal milieu of, uh, you know, not ever having emotions and not ever being hurt. Uh, you know, I was always strong and, you know, whatever. It's all a bunch of bullshit. But, but nonetheless, I was living in, in that world. And, and I had some idea that if I would use this technology that I was learning, that that was going to happen. And uh, I thought literally there was some, not literally, but metaphorically, there was some kind of uh, trap door that was going to open up underneath me. Our opposing counsel were going to jump up and say, your honor, objection using NVC, <laughs> which, of course, they didn't have any idea what I was doing. And I was just being sensible and reasonable under the circumstances in retrospect. Yeah. You know, it sort of makes me sort of reflect on like, why NBC is so, it seems so obvious when, when you learn it, even though it might feel awkward to learn it, but once you discover it, oh, oh this, this works a lot better. Why has that not been the norm? Or are there cultures in which it is the norm? Or, and instead of the, because our legal language is more of the norm of how we operate. Why, why is the, the legal language and the, and the, you know, religious language of applying to authority. Uh, trying to get people to do things. Um, I haven't found good reading about this. I mean, Marshall Rosenberg would say things like, it was so that the kings and the strong men could control. Uh, and that may well be, but I haven't found research that supports that. So the basic idea, basic thing is, I don't know. Um, I do know that uh, I know in the sense that I have a lot of personal observation, but without the science behind it, that, that we humans are built to judge. It seems to be uh, environmentally developed in our evolution that we as humans, as an organism, we're delivered into the world, you know, with this, you know, some of these ideas about development of language, that language is maybe a template that is organically built into us uh, and that then the, the language that we are exposed to um, fits into this template, stimulates this template and we grow in one direction with Chinese or another direction with English. Similarly, it seems like we come in with a template of judging other people. Now, that's not exactly the question you asked me, but it's, to me, it's very related. Um, because no matter how much I've practiced this, I'm now 70 years old, just celebrated my birthday. Um, I've been doing this for over 20 years, and I've been as diligent as I know how to be about integrating something. And um, when I walk down the street or when I'm in some sort of public context or just when I'm letting my mind float about other people and situations, I just have one judgment after another. I mean, it's just like a metronome. It, it, when I'm really paying attention to it, it's just, it's painful. Because I know every one of those judgments disconnects me from myself and from the other people. But it seems to be a very powerful tool that helps genes survive in humans from one generation to the next. Um, that doesn't mean that it's the best or good or better or it's not in a It's just a pure statement that those genes were preserved into the next generation. 
there are even germ genes that are regularly preserved in the next generation that in fact um, hinder uh, you know well-being yeah but but they are just they continue to be preserved in the next generation and, and this is one of those kind of things right so I think really I, I know that I'm, my answer is going on and if you talk to my friends and people who attend my workshops it's a, it's an issue but uh, I think what we're doing is creating a software at this inflection point that we humans are experiencing. You took all kinds of different criteria. We're in a uh, moving towards a geometric, uh, uh, whatever, what's the term? Uh, what do you call it when you reach the isotope? Isotope. Isotope, or I'm not, I'm not pronouncing asymptote. it correctly. Say it again. Asymptote. Asymptote. And, and we're at an inflection point. And we are evolving our technology, particularly AI and things of this sort, much faster than our, our biology is able to keep up. Um, we're metaphorically, but maybe also literally, we're on some kind of, uh, some kind of uh, linear and a very slow slope of change of the biology. And the world around us is, is changing in this geometric fashion. And we need to now work on the software with the existing uh, wetware. And the software needs to be able to keep up. And I have put all my chips in the pot on something coming out of NVC. And NVC or, or what evolves out of this is the best bet for how to change uh, the soft the software to keep up um, because this is we're in a critical time as humans I mean I'm not the <laughs> not the first voice to say this very very clear thing uh, right and that's why I started doing this work 20 years ago was yeah seeing it, that it, it seems that evolutionarily to conjecture you know things like shame and fear were probably better indicators back then of who was likely to survive. If you avoided, you know, shame, you wouldn't be outcasted. And if you, you know, listen to fear or, or anxiety, you know, you wouldn't, uh, you know, see danger as much. Whereas today, that's not necessarily the case because of how we're. Yeah, if you're in the evolutionary environment on a plane in the savanna, I mean, there are lots of things you don't have very good access to language, or certainly not the sophistication with language that we have now. And, um, you know, if, if you don't get along and if you don't submit to whoever is able to bring in the meat um, and also the hunter, the gathering, it's not just, it's not just hunting, but the hunting was a critical piece because it was these condensed portions of protein um, that were essential. Um, and so if you, if you didn't figure out a way to, to conform in the band, you couldn't survive outside. You know, you can't cover, you can't protect yourself the 24 hours you need to protect yourself from all the predators. Um, and then this is a similar kind of thing that goes on still in human society in some parts of the world and, and for a lot of the homeless. Um, 
and even in the various richest societies in, in the world. Yeah. And it, it's not just, you know, you talked about the grammar and, you know, the different sort of frameworks, the observations, feelings, needs, requests, but it's, it's also, you know, the, um, you know, in, in not using as much the verb to be, like, you know, Eric is irresponsible. Yes. Yes. Um, and that, you know, that's a very specific grammatical thing. Are there other languages or, or cultures that have, and note, and that feels more true to how the exp reality is than sort of a static, yeah, dynamic seems more to articulate how, how people are and how they operate more than sort of the static, you know, uh, view of language. Have you, have you looked into but, that across cultures or languages or? So I haven't found a, a culture that, that structures their language the way NBC does. I, ha I haven't found that personally, and I haven't read of one. Marshall uh, used to talk about uh, one or two that he'd run across. I, was, I wasn't able to verify them. I, I, I don't mean that I launched a, an intensive research project to try to verify it, but I just never did. Um, I, I also have taken these ideas of the verb to be and tried to apply them very kind of uh, as, a, as a, a training or a learning for myself, kind of exclude all use of the word to be, to be like he is, you are. Because generally what follows he is, you are is a, a judgment. It's a, it's a label. It's a static statement of, that summarizes. I, I have given up trying to do that. Um, and in fact, I have given up trying to, in all cases, not use labels. I tried that for a while. Um, it's not been so easy for some of the people living close to me <laughs> with, all my, with all of my, <laughs> what I've tried. Um, because labels are useful. They're helpful. They summarize things. And, and so I, was, I struggled with that for a while. And then I realized, oh, it's this idea that, that NBC in this special grammar is particularly useful when I'm talking with myself. I have this rather intensive meditation, meditation background, as I alluded to. Um, so I spend, you know, what is, what is the grammar that I use to talk to myself? So there I try to use, I try to translate all these judgments into this grammar of observation, feelings, needs, requests. And I find that to be very helpful. Um, but I don't, I, I use labels uh, in my speech when, I, when I'm communicating easily and, we're, and I'm connected with the people I'm communicating with and I have a reasonable level of trust that they're understanding what I mean. Uh, what I find is the more disconnection, I've done a lot of mediation work as a result of this, both for my own learning but, and also professionally and also to support people in horrendous kind of conflicts. I, the more people are disconnected, the, the kind of more I drop into a kind of strict uh, use of the grammar, as I'm calling it, of NBC. Uh, and the more people are disconnected and in conflict with each other and with themselves, the less likely they are to comment upon the language I'm using. I got that basic concept from a guy named Dominic Barter, uh, from Brazil, from Rio, and who developed, uh, he, he developed what he calls uh, restorative circles is what he's developed. 
And it was his concept of when he would go into the favelas, he would he used to talk about going into the to the very poor shanty towns that grow up the hillsides that have been there for 150 years in Rio. And they're generally controlled by the drug gangs. And so they have armed young men at the, you know, at the uh, pathway entrance points to these areas. And he said that the tenser the situation, very similar to what I said, the tenser the situation is he never has any, he's never had anyone challenge uh, how he's using his language. Nobody's saying, hey, why are you talking funny? Um, so from that, I kind of drew this, it, it's further support for this idea of, oh, when you're connected with people, you can use whatever language. But when you're not, and the, and the challenge is high, there's all sorts of different ways of talking about those moments. It's kind of like pointing your finger at it. Um, then, then it's really helpful to have a technology that, that allows me to, with, with, the, with lower likelihood of a person misunderstanding what I'm trying to communicate. And with a lower likelihood that I will misunderstand what the other person is trying to communicate. I, I, I've, again, I despair on the idea that you can have absolutely clear, absolute clarity either direction, because fundamentally I can't get inside your neurology and you can't get inside my neurology. But can I increase the probability of clarity? That's, that's my focus. Kieran, where do you differ, uh, if at all, uh, from a high level or, or practically from, uh, from some of the views uh, that, uh, that Marshall himself uh, espoused? Obviously, you, you have you know, a ton in common, but where, if, if at all, do you, do you differ? Well, I mean, we're two individuals, and two individuals have different life experience, and they form different conclusions and so on. Um, one of the things that I think has really kind of hurt his work is the pain that he had around institutions um, and not that I am, and I tended to, I, I tend to agree with what I remember of what he had to say about uh, the, the dangers of institutions. So he, 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 he did not, for, for a while, he was uh, working inside institutions, particularly I remember him talking about uh, insurance companies and working with employees and working with sales insurance uh, people. And he was very well received there. And uh, at some point he stopped doing that. He, was a, he had this fear that his work was gonna be used uh, with bad motive, bad intent, uh, something like that. I never really heard him talk about it. It was all, uh, you know, from context and from conver other conversations about other things. Um, I, on the other hand, am of the view that if we're going to really be able to make, have impact and a change on how people uh, use language in this thing that I was talking about earlier, where we are in the inflection curve, and uh, we're not talking about doing DNA, um, DNA changes through natural selection, or some people probably are, but DNA changes um, 
using artificial means, then the other place that we can make changes is in our software, so to speak, um, and in how we think, the memes that we use to approach the world. And NBC is a memeplex, using that language from uh, Richard Dawkins' book, 1976, The Selfish Gene. It's now used in the public in the public sphere is a, a, a much simpler, simplified idea. It's just an idea. Uh, but that's essentially what Dawkins was talking about, an idea that gets replicated from mind to mind, very, is varied in its replication, and then there's selection as to how it's continued to be used. So NBC is a meme, a meme plaques, meaning it's a many memes. And um, I believe that where we're going to really get traction is by going to organizations and that organizations that want to replicate that meme themselves because they see the benefits that it has for collaboration um, and for uh, in intercompany communication and communication with people outside the company. Uh, so there's one place I differ. And, and you believe that because that's how uh, things get popular nowadays that, that that's a business model that can support and, and you know teaching NBC at scale or, or why do you believe that you know it's company driven rather than you know more bottoms up uh, you know civilian driven or, or you know, volunteer community driven nonprofit? well I, I want it to be at all those levels uh, where I think we're likely to have the greatest impact is in is in organizations because as I talked to head of training in China for Nissan he was talking about why he wanted to do this work. And he says, I want my people to be happy at work. I want them to be happy in their families. And I want them to be happy in their communities. I want their communities to be happy. I want their families to be happy. So he has an idea that if you do something inside the company, that then it's going to uh, have this impact outside. And and I tend to have that view of things. If you learn some, some process or approach in your company training, and you find it helps you communicate more effectively, then you're going to use that in the other contexts of your life. Now, where I got this idea, basically, um, I tried to trace it down recently. Um, um, it was from a futurist in the 60s. At, who was at SRI, and he made this simple statement. He said, um, the, the largest organization, largest companies in the world are looked to for uh, their uh, cutting edge, uh, you know, best practices. And if you can get 10 of those of the top 200 companies to utilize a dip, a, an approach or to think of things in a different way, you're talking about 10 people maybe in 10 companies, that's 100, and 10 people in 200 companies, that's 2,000. That is a very, very doable size uh, uh, target. So that has stuck in my head ever since I read it sometime in the 70s. Um, and, and, 
and I have been, it's, it's taken me a long time. It, within the last five years, I've really been implementing that approach. And you think about NVC in the workplace versus, versus NVC in our, our personal lives. When, when does it differ? Or how do you think about the differences? Of course, because, you know, for the purpose of a friendship or relationship, that itself is the output. Whereas in a work context, you know, people can get fired and, and the ultimate output is, um, is, you know, growth or, or the business metrics now. How do you think about the differences there? I've already said the idea that I think that when you learn something that's effective in the workplace and you find you communicate more effectively with other people, however you define effective in that context. In a personal relationship, I would define effective in a different way. It's very important to me in the relationships that I characterize as being based upon love, that I don't make them transactional. So, and in the workplace, they tend to be more transactional because the metric, ultimately the metric is uh, some kind of profit. Uh, even in the nonprofit world, you have to make enough money to, uh, to stay in business. So it's not necessarily a profit, but you have to make them, you have to, you have to bring in more than you expend. So in both contexts, the nonprofit, the NGO world, and the, and the business world, your metric comes around to some kind of measure of money. Can you stay in business at the very least? And can you, uh, in the, in the for-profit companies, can you, can you attract more capital? Uh, can you make enough profit to attract more capital? Um, so that, those are big differences for me in my personal relationships, in my, my community relationships. Uh, I don't want them to be transactional. Um, and particularly with my family and my, my wife, I mean, it's just when I n n begin to notice just the, the first, like, phrasing of things in a way that there's a quid pro quo, I, I check myself and then I say, no, I don't want to, you know, let, let me rephrase that. Or, or are you willing to rephrase it? Because I really don't want to have this kind of contractual or, or, obligatory or quid, quid, quid pro quo is the term that I use, but it may not be really common for most people. It's, you know, I give you something and you give me something back. Uh, and I want to have my, my personal relationships to be that I just want to give. Now, Marshall was talking about having that kind of relationship be in all of your interactions. And I would like that too. Uh, but that is not the world that I see that we live in. So that's another area where it's not well defined for me yet that there's a difference between me and Marshall is I'm more of, okay, what is the world that we live in? And what are the, what, how can I meet my needs for safety and, and needs for safety for those that I love and that are close to me for those I care about? for a, an expanding circle of people. How can I meet needs of safety? When in fact, there are people who want to cause harm uh, that are sociopathic and they, 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 they don't have the same care or concern about causing harm to others that I would like them to have.
So I'm 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 more oh, I, a realist. I want to pat myself on the back. I'd use the label realist. Yes, uh, but it wasn't that Marshall wasn't a realist. Marshall was a person who was raised in a tough neighborhood. You know, he had been a boxing, uh, you know, very successful amateur boxer. I mean, he he fought his way back and forth to school, um, uh, dealing with people that were bullying and so on in very tough neighborhoods in Detroit to hear and tell the story. I am curious about this sort of difference. And is it because Marshall is, is positing sort of a different theory of, does NBC have a theory of human nature? Basically, that all humans are trying to meet their needs, that there are no sociopaths, that we can care for. I know I've never heard anyone try to articulate it that way. Um, I think that there has been an unfortunate uh, kind of confusion of the term nonviolent communication, which Marshall on several occasions took pains to explain came out of a particular point in time when he was being asked to do presentations with a lot of groups that identified with the Gandhian nonviolent uh, by nonviolence movement. Um, and Marshall, when you, when you analyze NBC, it is not nonviolent. He's saying he has a term protective use of force. And, it, and it, in my personal uh, you know, journey, I, it's very clear to me, and some time ago, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a pacifist. I am, I, you know, you come after mine and you come after the people I love and I'm going to interpose myself with everything I have to whatever level is necessary to protect them if I can. Now, I want to do all the steps that Marshall talked about, and this has been very important to me in my life to, to have that process that Marshall talks about, you know, Am I, am I acting out of anger? Is there, are there needs, uh, you know, are there other ways that I can meet this need for safety other than whatever it is that I'm contemplating? Um, but that, that's clearly is not a nonviolent. That's, that's, that's Marshall's, and I, I like his approach to protective use of force. Um, and uh, that's, that's not strict Gandhian nonviolence. But then, but then my sense of Gandhian nonviolence is that has been misinterpreted. Um, that Gandhian nonviolence was a st- particular strategy used at a particular time uh, against the, the British government when um, the, the people of India had very little other alternatives other than to use nonviolent. And, and in a sense, it was nonviolent. It was violent. I mean, he put people and himself on the front lines where they were going to get hurt, and people did. Um, so yes, the other people are contributing the violence, but you're walking directly into a situation where violence is uh, the expected outcome. That, to me, is not nonviolence. Uh, Gandhi was a very tough politician. He was he was, he had been in the, the politics for a long time and, and he was using nonviolence, this nonviolent action as a way of, of shaming the 
the British government in, in the court of world opinion to, to grant, uh, you know, liberation or freedom to the, to the Indian people. Um, so I think there's been a misunderstanding about nonviolent and then, and then where non the term nonviolent communication came from. And then this kind of a muddle of, Oh, I want everybody to be happy and peaceful together, which I want too. And then, but, but how is that going to come about with someone who is, is threatening violence? Now, this language is incredibly powerful in those situations, which I've been in a handful, less than a handful of those situations where people were threatening violence. And I've used this language and uh, seen a profound impact. So I definitely want to be able to have all the skills that are possible because otherwise, if I come out of my childhood training, if I see someone uh, looking aggressive, if I'm interpreting them as aggressive and threatening violence, my childhood training is, is I immediately come forward and stand, literally puff up my chest, and I raise my fist, and I'm ready to do battle. Instead of, okay, soften my shoulders, relax my chest, don't sink it, I'm not, I'm not caving, but just relax myself, and can I lower my tone of voice, and can I, and then can I try to connect with the needs of the person, you know, what's going on with them, what their distress is, while at the same time, acting in, in ways that are moving people out of harm's way, and moving myself out of harm's way, and moving myself in a position where I can use the defensive skills that I've learned, because I spent like 20 years doing different kinds of martial arts. Um, you know, because, so that, that's my approach to things. Do you, um, but hear me out on this one. I, it's my understanding that NBC has a little bit of a claim of, hey, people are just trying to meet their needs, and let's understand what, what their needs are. And is that, you know, there, there are other claims that say, hey, people are just trying to, uh, you know, maximize genetic fitness so they can get their genes to next generation. And that typically involves them, you know, trying to acquire status or power. Those are two di very different claims about human nature. Is, is that? I don't see them that different. I, I spent a number of years trying to understand evolution in the popular literature and read a lot of books about it by, you know, Dawkins and Dennett and all sorts of other folks. Um, first of all, there's, there's lots of misunderstanding about evolutionary biology and what genetic fitness is and so on. And just because we have some idea that something is, is more fit, this was the problem in the 30s and the 20s with all sorts of people that ended up going down the road of eugenics and so on. Just because we think that someone is more fit does not mean that their genes are going to be saved into the next generation. Because that's all that means. All genetic fitness means it's a kind of retrospective view of things. Were, were their genes saved into the next? So maybe the most fit, the most terrific guy is a guy on the front lines who, you know, in the, in the endless wars that preceded uh, you know, the modern era, um, maybe that person got killed. 
because that's where you sent the young men and that's where they proved their fitness for that culture. I'm putting quotes around fitness for that culture. And then if they survived that, then they became the, the, the people, the, 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 one, the men who would have the most opportunity for reproduction with the most number of women, and they would have the power in the culture, more power than those who did not you know, have a martial background. That was a big part of nearly all cultures I've read about for the last several thousand years where we have any kind of record, uh, any kind of historical written or play or archeological record. So genetic fitness, first of all, we gotta be really clear about our, our terminology. And I think it is a, it's a kind of, it's a kind of self-evident statement that we're each acting to meet our needs at each moment. I mean, I just think that, I don't, what else are we doing? You know, it's like, yes. I mean, when I first heard it, and I've seen a lot of people take it in as, as, as revelatory, <clears throat> but a number of years after I first heard it, I went, yeah, okay, that's, it's like, how else would it be? Right, but when you, when you have a list of needs, we have, you know, respect, autonomy, creativity, etc. We don't have status, power. Well, status and power are strategies to meet those other needs. So we tend to, we have those words in English to talk about that phenomena that we see in the world. So, I mean, to put it in NBC jargon, those are labels that, that explain certain conduct that we see in others. And, uh, you know, they're particularly, they can be useful. You talk about, uh, you know, status hierarchies and certain kinds of, you know, how, how groups are organized and, and you, you, you talk about just Bayesian curves. I think it's Bayesian. I may be misstating. But anyway, it's a, it's a particular form of geometric curves that you can apply uh, status hierarchies to. And so I, it, that, that to me is the kind of thing that the, the NBC certified trainers newsletter debates endlessly. And I just opted out of, uh, because they're just, first of all, they're just words. I mean, we made up all these words, not you and me, and not, not, not the people who are alive today, but we humans made up these words. And what, you know, what is status? You know, what does hierarchy mean? What is that? And those are ways of talking about how we get our needs met. Uh, men tend to, but it's also women too, tend to, um, kind of measure things in terms of status hierarchies. But those are to meet other needs, you know, needs for safety, well-being, and, and all sorts of other things. Help me better understand why, I wonder why it isn't reversed, that the thing, the respect, autonomy, creativity, those are just strategies to have more status, and what does more status get us, you know, more likely to reproduce and survive? Well, that's, um, a, good, that's a good question. I wish we had some social scientists who were asking and trying to figure out ways of, of deciphering that. So we don't have that as yet. Um, but for me, uh, 
I don't I don't have an answer that I is based upon data or something like that. I had or some sort of in, ingenious, uh, you know, scientific research model. It's just it seems to me that the the litany of needs that you just said are closer to what it's actually this organism needs. So, so first of all, this organism does not need respect. This organism, most of what meaning of the need respect comes out of that nonverbal part of ourselves. The nonverbal part of ourselves doesn't use words like respect. It doesn't use words. It doesn't have words. So we are, we are importing a word onto a part of ourselves that doesn't use language. So, I mean, that's baffling in and of itself. So now we're going to have a dispute about status is not a need or is a need. Uh, you know, and we do this dance, well, it's a way to other need, meets other needs. You know, it's really a strategy to meet other needs. The nonverbal part of ourselves that is that is constantly scanning and is on the alert and is trying to respond to the environment, it's not making those distinctions. And, and, and I don't know how that part thinks because I don't have access to it. Nobody does. We have some access to it when we're empathizing with ourselves or with another person. And that seems to be the genius that, that Marshall and before him uh, you know, uh, Carl Rogers and others before then, Maslow and so on, that, that, that needs seems to be a way of talking with the nonverbal part of ourselves. And uh, why these words that we've come up with have such impact on this nonverbal part of ourselves, I don't know. But I, I, I don't. I understand why you would want to ask the question you've been asking about status versus other needs. Um, and I really liked the way you phrased it. If you phrased it the other way, how come status isn't the need and the others are the, uh, are the strategies to meet that need? Uh, I really like that because it, 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 it indicates to me that you're not totally inside some bubble. You're out, you're trying to get outside and, and poke from the outside and say, does this, does this schema really work? And um, I did that for four years before I was all in from 1996 until December of 2000. I remember when the penny dropped and exactly what it was in 2000. And I'm still, well, it was this idea of the Marshall's idea of, uh, you know, don't do anything that doesn't bring you the joy of feeding a hungry duck. And every time I heard that, I mean, when I first met Marshall, I was doing high stakes, big case, multi-party, federal court litigation. <laughs> and let me tell you, that's as far away from some of the worlds I inhabit nowadays. And, and you know, he would talk, well, I think I told you this earlier, but, you know, the first 30 or 40 minutes of being in a workshop with him, first time I met him, I, I said, I don't know what this guy's doing, but I'm learning how to do it. I'm going to do it. And then I went to everything he did in the Bay Area, 
he was coming back to the Bay Area twice a year for the next four or five years. And I just, and then I started following him around the world. And I just, I mean, this guy was onto something. He was onto something, but I still was trained as a lawyer and was the skeptical person that I continue to be. And so I sort of deconstructed, you know, all of these things he'd say, and I'd spend all this time in between workshops intellectually trying to figure it out. I don't think that's the best way to learn NBC, by the way. I caution, caution people against that. Uh, luckily, I, I had some concomitant strategies that, that work better because NBC is intellectually not, it's not, it doesn't translate into performance intellectually understand it. Um, but anyway, so I would deconstruct and, and, you know, say, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, yes, that makes sense. That, I see how that works and so on. But every time I heard him say this hungry duck thing, metaphorically, my, my right hand would go up. I remember thinking back and really feeling my right hand go up and, and say in my own mind, not out loud, bullshit. I mean, every time he said that, I went, oh, bullshit. Oh, bullshit. And... And then I was also reading a lot of, um, not a lot of it, but I was, re I was reading, I kept going back and reading um, Joseph Campbell. And he was talking about following your bliss. And uh, finally, I kind of got this, and my glimpse of it was, if you're a leaf, I don't know why this metaphor makes any sense to me. I've tried it with other people. It makes no sense to anybody else. But if you're a leaf going down the Mississippi, you know, high up in the Mississippi, say in Montana someplace, and you start on one side of the bank and you want to get to the other side of the bank, it, you, you just make incremental choices. So in our lives, we make incremental choices. And in each moment, that we have to make choice. We don't know what, whether the choice is going to give us the outcome we want or not. That's just a given. P people want to know that. They desperately want to know that. They try to do all sorts of things. But, and, and to me, that was very clearly the case of Viktor Frankl's book, uh, whatever the name of his book is. Anyway, there were two times in there where he was in the, in the, camps, prison camps, and he made the choice to go, he was a doctor, an MD, and he went to the choice to go with the, the, the more infirm group of people who he assumed, and everybody else assumed, were going to be killed shortly. And both times it was the other group that was killed. So to me, that is a lawyer, and you take the extreme case, that made clear to me, and plus all sorts of reading about statistics and about just all sorts of stuff that we don't, we do not know in this moment what this choice is going to lead to. We cannot. It's not just that we don't, it's just that we cannot. It's just not doable. So what is my, if I, if I work all the things out that I can think through and that I feel about, then what, what do I make my choice about? Don't, don't I want to make a choice that's around joy, you know, about, about, about love and intimacy and care and, and, and ultimately love, joy, 
and so that's when the penny dropped. I was in this workshop in Arizona. I spent all that, I spent three, or I spent four plus years deconstructing. And I really like that your question deconstructs, that it, it, it attempts to say, okay, let's really test some of this. And ultimately, I've been trying to get social scientists interested. I've been more, I've been trying to figure out a strategy to get social science interested, social scientists interested in studying the claims of NBC. Uh, I have not been successful. Yeah, because, because like you, and you obviously been doing it for you know decades more, but I too have found the magic of NBC and, and pressure testing it to see you know how far it applies to me, how widely applicable it is to, to others who may have different uh, internal, um, you know, made up of, you know, just operate in different ways. And then also um, how far it extends itself. For example, you know, I first found it in the context of a uh, conflict resolution framework, but then others say, no, it's, it's a communication framework beyond conflicts. And then others say, no, it's not just communication. It's a, it's a way of being. And others say it's not just a consciousness or a way of being. It's a, it could be a macro philosophy. How, how far do you think it, it extends? First of all, when people acknowledge they're in conflict, uh, it's a very useful tool. Uh, it's it, my overarching response to the several categories that you just described is um, that it's not a magic wand. It's a probable. It's a it's a pro, it's a theor, It's a series of um, heuristics, and I use that word instead of rule of thumb because of the history and origin of rule of thumbs. The etymology of rule of thumb came from that in England at a certain period of time, you could strike your wife with a rod no bigger than the size of your thumb and it would not be considered battery. Uh, so I prefer not to use rule of thumb. But then the only word that I, oh, guideline, that's the other, guideline and heuristic. So it's a series of guidelines that probabilistically improve what you're, the outcome you're wanting. But hearkening back to, I said, there's no way to know the outcome of what you do. So, you, you know, so my approach is that I modify how I have my habitual way of reacting, which comes out of my childhood with an intentional model that I practice, practice, practice so that I can be skillful in it when I'm under challenge, when I have adrenaline flowing in me. So I can increase the likelihood that I'll produce the kind of outcome that I want. So I've done a lot of mediation work with people that are in intractable uh, conflicts and it's very helpful. It is not a magic wand. By that I mean, I can't guarantee that using, it, these are not like incantations. Oh, if I use this, this incantation, then I'm going to calm the waters and everybody's going to be cool and I'm going to get the outcome I want. I mean, this, this came to me more strikingly when I first started doing mediation work. I did a lot of couples work. And I found, in, ref, in reflecting, using NBC to reflect upon my mediations, I realized that I wanted these people to stay together or to cut back together. And I realized, oh, if I'm really going to be able to help these people, 
I need to be able to support them to produce the outcome they want to produce. And that was a big thing for me about conflict resolution and so on. So then the next tier, you said conflict resolution, what's the next tier? tier? I guess all of uh, communication, like uh, just beyond when we're not in conflict. Well, I, I have been doing a lot of thinking about that in the last five years, and I don't, that's not the way I conduct my life. Um, but what do I mean by that? I mean that, and this is the way I say it, is when I'm not in conflict, uh, when I'm, I have an easy flow of a connection with a person, I don't give a shit whether I curse. There's some people that don't want cursing. I've had people tell me that. We have that in the national media. Our President Trump said, God damn. And there are a bunch of very strict Christians for whom that is more, more upsetting to them than the other things that he has done in his life. Now, that amazes me, but that's, that's just, I want to talk into the listening of the people I'm with. If that means I don't curse, then I don't curse. If it means I say shit, damn, goddamn, and every other, you know, word that, that whatever his name is, the, the comedian Lenny Bruce used, the seven you know, things you weren't supposed to say, then I'll use those. So NBC is a strategy. Here, the distinction between strategy and need really helps. NBC is a strategy. And does that strategy help me create the kind of connection that I want? And in, in some moments, the answer is no. We all, anybody who's, who's ever tried to incorporate NBC into their life knows they have people in their life that go, no, get away from, get away with, from me with that NBC. Go away. I mean, my, I had a 15-year-old daughter. She turned to her mother and myself and said, you know, I have no feelings, needs, or requests. Let's move on. Because her mother and I were in the early NBC stages, and we were going, so are you feeling because you need? <laughs> we were using all this formulaic language and creating disconnection. NBC is a strategy for connection. And then people use it and they create disconnection and they're really baffled and upset and distressed. So, no, it's not a general, it, it is a general communication model for me because even when I'm talking, you know, bullshit to people, I am thinking, what is the need behind, what is my request? What is my need? Uh, you know, what am I feeling? How can I express how can I connect with this person? I want to communicate feelings because they're such a powerful connector because everybody has certain, but I can use, I'm willing to use terms that in NVC are called judgment, you know, are called uh, faux feelings. I don't care if I can create the connection. So NVC is not some sort of universal magic wand that if I, if I use this kind of strategy, that I'm going to create this sort of kumbaya result. Uh, no, but that's just not the way it is. That's not the way the world is in my experience of it. And so I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a general model that I want it. No, I'm going to say it more strongly. It is not a general model that I want to use all the time. And for the reasons that some of them I've expressed already. 
And what's the next one? You- the next one was sort of a broader philosophy or, or way of life, you know, with principles such as there's no such thing as as good or bad or, or right or wrong, or we don't use the verb to be, you know, a static language, things like well, that. I've tried not to use the verb to be. I've tried really hard to do that, and I, I'm, I have not been successful. Uh, I'll tell you another thing that's difficult if you've steeped in NBC is to write something or, or speak, but I've been doing a lot of writing lately, and to not speak and not to write in the past, in the uh, passive voice. And, and I've done some research on passive voice, and for the first time I understand that active voice is when the, the subject of the sentence is doing the action. And passive voice is when the subject of the sentence is the receiver of the action. And there's just a lot of language in NBC. I don't think it's NBC. I think it sort of flows from trying to talk about, about the, trying to use language that emphasizes the present moment. Have you looked into E-Prime at all? No. Tell oh, me it, about E-Prime. I, I don't know enough about it, but it, it's, it's another it, language that tries not to use uh, to be. Um. I, I, I stopped, I, I looked into E-Prime, uh, not E-Prime, uh, you know, the whole thing about the verb to be over 10 years ago. And, and uh, I think about it every now and then, and I think, eh, could I say that? I clearly, the, the, it's, it's something that I'm glad is in my consciousness and that I pay attention to, because lots of times I'm saying, like, like one con- construct that I, I often am changing is, it made me angry, rather than saying, you know, this is what happened, and I feel angry. Uh, uh, so it is a kind of way of distancing myself from responsibility. Right. What about the other part, the sort of the right or wrong or, or good or bad? You know, one critique people have of NBC is, uh, or sometimes I've heard is that it's too ethical, relativistic, that they're, you know, it doesn't take enough stance, that not all things are equal. And it's not just your needs, my needs, but sometimes you were wrong or you acted out of line or, you know, or that doesn't scale beyond sort of one-to-one. How do you think about that? Well, I, it sounds like we need to use specific examples, but I, I, uh, I don't think right and wrong, deciding who was right or wrong helps us. That's been my experience, just a practical thing. Um, it, it, it gets in the way of being able to particularly to learn and do it better next time. So the way I think about NBC these days is as a, as a learning circle in which I'm preparing for either in the next moment or, you know, tomorrow with my meeting with the boss or with my team, I'm preparing for conversations and I'm having conversations or I may practice conversations and I have them. And then I debrief them to try to learn from them. And we do this as evolutionary. I mean, this is, this is the nature of evolution, but with regard to our thoughts is how can I do it better next time? That is the ultimate question, our learning question that we have going forward moment by moment is how can I do it better next time? I can't change the past and right or wrong focuses me on the past in a way that, that, keep, that 
retards me from effectively looking forward. So if I'm trying to decide, okay, well, you know, you did it wrong, or I'm going to protect myself from being labeled as having done it wrong, then I'm not going to have the same openness and the same, even within myself and my own self-dialogue, to be able to go, okay, how could I have done that better? It's not about whether I, yeah, I didn't meet certain needs. When I'm able to identify, not right and wrong, but did it meet my needs or not meet my needs, then I can be in a better learning space to go, okay, how can I better meet those needs before? I see that I didn't, and right and wrong is also, this. anyway, right and wrong, I think Marshall was really right on when he was talking about right and wrong. Uh, it's just, it just gets you into circular thinking that is really counterproductive for trying to just figure out how to do it better next time. You know, I know the NVC is amazing for mediating uh, for mediating arguments between individuals yeah. uh, and, and, but, and small groups. What, what about for, for larger groups, um, for, you know, groups of you know, larger group, like Israelis and Palestinians, for example, not just on a micro level, but on a macro level. And what is changed about the scale? Like what, the, what, the, what core principles are changed when you're dealing, you know, NBC within, you know, groups of 10 versus when you're dealing NBC within groups of, you know, 10,000, and there are you know, 5,000 on one side and 5,000 on the other side. The model that I've created for uh, you know, conflicts like the, the Syrian civil war uh, what, you know, in earlier years was the, the, the conflict, uh, the Catholic-Protestant conflict in uh, Northern Ireland. Um, these, these, uh, these divides, um, Rwanda and other places. My model for that is uh, to, to start with two people on each side, just one each, and, but people that have some kind of following. The, the biggest following that I can find are the team. This would be a team. This would be an international project. So it would be funding from the UN or funding from the US military surprisingly enough, might be interested in funding this kind of thing. And then um, you videotape it and, you know, you have to get approvals all the way through and you edit it down, approvals of the edit, and then, then you release those. And you use those, those conversations as your, uh, your, your card, your entree to the next higher level of people that have following, political or however you want to uh, determine following. And you keep going up until you get to as, as high a level as you can, and, and you've created these kinds of conversations because, now why do I, that, you've got the model, but now why do I think it will help is because I think people tend to identify with, you know, a particular a particular political leader or thought leader or religious leader or something like that. They're all thought leaders. And, and I go, oh, okay, if he or she is willing to see and hear and open up and look for possibilities, then, then you know, that opens up the space in me to do that too. So it's a kind of vicarious mediation. So that's 
that's my model for how to, to, to utilize the NBC model in the mediation context. Um, when, when you're actually talking about you have a group of people and you're, you're doing group mediation to try to make a decision, uh, you know, I've been in rooms where, where there are 80 people two or three times that have made a decision uh, using strictly NBC uh, approaches. Um, the, the approach that Marshall, uh, you know, I saw him use in workshops, um, in these nine or 10 day workshops, he would, <laughs> would get the arguments would get started about, are we gonna have the windows open or closed or the shades up or down or this or that, or sit near the door, or the door is open and the, you know, it's hot here, it's cold here. And so, NBC's for group decision maker, my experience is the largest number is 80 people. Uh, I think once you get beyond, you know, however many you can fit into a room, I think you really have a hard time with people paying attention and staying focused and because uh, you're only, you know, you're, only, you're limited to having one person talk at a time. Um, I think they're probably, if, if you have a thousand or two thousand people, there are probably other approaches that I would, I would recommend using instead of the NBC group mediation model. So I don't, I don't advocate the NBC uh, conflict resolution models and group decision-making models over all others because they're NBC. Um, I, I, I have used the NBC model because I do not need to have anybody's agreement to use it. Now it helps if people come to me and say, would you use this model? But I don't, I don't have to have people's agreements. And when I practice law, uh, we'd get into some big contentious lawsuit and we could have letters going back and forth for years on, you know, metaphorically back to the Vietnam War, what's the shape of the table at the Paris Peace Accords? Um, you know, it's, it's sort of, how, how are we going to go about resolving the dispute became what we're in dispute about. So I want to have tools that I can use that I don't have to have permission and that people don't necessarily, you know, say, oh, you're using that NBC stuff. I won't talk with you unless you stop using it. You know, because I can use NBC in a way that does not have any jargon in it at all. Yeah, I'd like you to talk a little bit about how you think about uh, the more and celebrate learn uh, process as it relates and as, how it differs from apologies uh, as we uh, un understand it today. Okay. So more and celebrate learn the way I use that and the way John Kenyon and I named that process. Uh, it, it built upon what we'd been hearing from Marshall about uh, about how to how to step out of right and wrong and. and you know, he would use the quote from Rumi about a, a field and I'll meet you there. So if I can focus on the needs that I did meet and the needs that weren't met, generally I focus on if I'm doing it with myself or I'm asking someone to help me go through the process, I generally mourn first because that's generally the loudest voice that I have in my head. You screwed up. Or my voice is much more... Uh, scatological and much more profane and uh, 
but I won't sully your podcast airways with all of the language that my head uses. But that's that voice. That voice is very harsh and is, you know, you, you screwed up. So I first empathize with that voice and what needs. And that voice is, is talking about the needs not met. That's the mourn. You know, I'm sad those needs were not met. That's sort of ultimately where I come out on that. And I begin to feel the shift. And then I, then I go, yeah, well, is there anything about it? Of what happened or the interaction or the specifics. And then I look for what needs were met. And sometimes <laughs> it's kind of hard to come up with something. But it's really, it's always been helpful to me to try to find the needs that were met. And then something that Marshall didn't really talk about, I think probably it was implied, he would say, oh yeah, I meant that, uh, is that we added this learn, mourn, celebrate, learn. And learn is three parts. Uh, it's to learn, plan, and practice. And this is the how can I do it better next time. So I reflect upon the, the, the morning and the celebration to see, okay, what have I learned now? What have I gotten out of this? See, and this is hearkening back to our conversation about right and wrong. See, now I'm open to, oh, that strategy didn't meet my needs as well. Oh, okay. That's okay. So, like, next time. And then, so then, as soon as I'm in my learning process, I start thinking, oh, next time I want to do it this way, not that way. And now I'm in the planning. You know, can I plan, can I create if-then statements of saying, okay, if this situation comes up again, if I hear myself saying this in my head, I'm going to then do this, or if somebody else says something, I'm then going to do this. <coughs> I'm going to say this or do this. And practice is learn, plan, practice. If I plan something, and if the stakes are high enough, then I, at least I'll practice it within my own head as a series of dialogues. But I might also get a team together, you know, and, and, and really practice something, and, you know, just like for big uh, corporate presentations or for, you know, for presidential debates, you get a team together and you, you know, how can I really say this to where it's really, how can I communicate what's really true for me and is most connecting way that I can imagine for that person? Not the most connecting way. There is no the most connecting way. It's my guess of what would be connecting with this other person. And it might be, do I, do I use, you know, the, the seven, you know, words that are not used, allowed to be used on TV? That may be what's really connecting with somebody. I, in fact, I have a story I tell. I was at an NBC board meeting. And I got in a huge conflict with another attorney. And we stood up across the table and were yelling at each other. And he, he had done a lot of the kind of litigation that I had done, maybe even more of it. And uh, I, I was all upset. I was judging myself. I was condemning myself. Over the night, I did all sorts of uh, self-empathy. Uh, I worked. I, I thought through what I was going to say. And I saw the guy the next morning, and I told him, uh, you know, I went through what I had planned to tell him, my regret and my disappointment. I apologize. And he said, nah, don't. It's the first time I really felt I trusted what you were saying. So it was super connecting for him. 
because he came out of a culture in which if you were willing to stand up and go toe-to-toe verbally with, the, with opposing counsel, you were really saying what's true. <laughs> so that's, that's sort of an extreme example of, yeah, I want to figure, I want to learn and I want to plan, and then I want to practice what I hope will be more connecting in this similar situation with this person or someone similar to this person. So more, more, more celebrate, learn is a process that I see is, is in this learning circle. So you, you, that's what you do after, and then it leads right into you know, practice planning and practicing and preparing and doing the enemy image process, preparing for the next conversation of can I, can I deconstruct my judgments about this other, oh, this person's a jerk or an asshole or, a, and again, I go into my more profane language, um, but, you know, they're stubborn, they're difficult, they're silly, they're, they're disruptive, they're a pain, they're whatever. Can I deconstruct that? Not because I've lost my critical faculties. No, I still see the conduct I don't like. But if I can see, if I can, if I can glimpse and connect with the needs they're seeking to meet with that conduct, then I can be more open to ways of, of, of connecting with them to, to ameliorate that conduct, to alter that conduct. Uh, that would be more so, so that I can, if, if I uh, can deconstruct my enemy images of them, they are more likely to be able to hear and be willing to do what I request. So I, I do these things because I want to do them better next time, and I want my life to be better. And in my life being better, hopefully other people's lives being better, because I don't want to. So to agree if they don't agree, if it's not going to meet their needs. Uh, you know, it, it worked this context. Let's talk about how do we best, you know, deconstruct the enemy or how else do we best deconstruct enemy images of someone while at the same time not be taken for granted, not be, um, you know, uh, sort of walked over if they continue to, you know, like not be on our guard. You know what I mean? Like how do we assume the best in somebody even when they may not <laughs> have the best intentions actually? I'm liable to say this in a little bit of a harsh way, but um, I care about their needs, but I care about my needs. And I'm not backing down from my needs. If you get in my face, asshole, I, I want to try everything I can to figure out some way of us being able to to connect and out of that connection, collaborate on whatever it is the difference is between us and to be able to collaborate on a more favorable outcome for both of us. But because I'm committed to trying that does not mean that I'm gonna back down. Now, my idea of what back down means now is very different now than it used to be. I'm, I, I don't, interpret my changing my position in the ways that I used to. I used to interpret my changing position as if I had demonstrated some kind of weakness or there was 
something wrong, I, that, that, that I had revealed myself in some way that I lost status or lost something. I, I, I've never really been able to put it into words. Uh, but it was when I was practicing law, man, to change my position to try to get a settlement done was really hard. <laughs> I had to, I really had to get myself, I had to work on myself to do it. So, I, so, and it's this whole idea of being right or wrong. I, so now I have a value of, I want to immediately see how I'm seeing something in a way that's not helpful for me and for other people. And, I, and it's a value for me to immediately, you know, that's, I, I was wrong. And I use that language, I was wrong, because that's what most people hear, that's what they understand that. I'm not trying to make some sort of NBC purist point. I'm just saying, yeah, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm stepping back from that. Let's, maybe the way you're proposing it is the way to go. So that's a huge value for me, is to be willing to, to just moment by moment, be willing to hear the other person and to be able to go, oh, okay, I like that better. I've changed now. I like what you're saying better than, than what I was you know, where I was coming from. So, yeah, let's do it that way. In closing, I'd like you to comment a little bit about where we are right now, where NVC is as, as a field. Like, what is unanswered within NVC? What are the questions you have? Or where would you like to see the field go in the next decade or so? Or where does it need to go? Well, NVC has to prove that it can sustain and grow, uh, you know, across generations. So we're really in the very, very early stages of this, and maybe a few million people have been exposed to NVC. And this gets back to the, when we first talked, the early part of our conversation about uh, about you know crossing the chasm into the mainstream and you know what strategy is going to get us there and yeah people are trying all sorts of different strategies and and we don't know we can't tell which one we can put odds on it we can prob probabilities but we don't know we don't know which one is going to be successful or if any of them are going to be successful and by success i mean that they uh are around in 50 years, around in 100 years, and, and that in fact they're not some unintended consequence of, of people interpreting it in some way to where it's like the, uh, the shaker community in the US, and they made a choice to, uh, you know, to be celibate, and that seemed to have been the choice that meant that their ideas died out, okay? So I don't think there's any danger of people in the NBC community uh, choosing celibacy, but my point is, is that uh, we're just, you know, we're a few decades into this experiment, and it is an experiment. Uh, it's an experiment in the real world. So I don't, I don't know where it's going to go. I've bet, I bet the last twenty years of my life on uh, on NBC and the way I articulated it in 1999, December of 99, was that I wanted to do my part to contribute to creating the kind of world that I wanted for my children and all children. 
And uh, I, depending upon the day, sometimes I'm more optimistic about that than other days. But uh, I mean, so I'm, I'm all in, I've been all in for 20 years. Um, and who knows? You know, can we check back in in a hundred years, or maybe maybe we'll know in fifty? I don't know. Uh, it's a that's a perfect a perfect note to close on. Um, Ike, where can you point people for uh, people who want to go deeper into into your work? So I have a website, IkeLasseter.com, and I have books uh, up on on Amazon. That you can find under Ike Lasseter. And those are the, those are the two main ones. People can also write me. Um, my email is ikelasseter at me.com. I spread that email around if people want to write me. Um, that's, that's it. And I was particularly inspired by the choosing peace and from conflict to connection. Uh, so yeah, definitely check out uh, Ike's, Ike's books. Um, my guest today has been Ike Lassiter. Uh, Ike, this has been a fantastic episode. Thank you so much for, for okay. coming on. Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 